Welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. This will be the last episode before our summer break, and we are thrilled to welcome Mihaly Fasekas. Mihaly is an assistant professor at the Central European University in Vienna. He is also the scientific director of the Government Transparency Institute and consults institutions such as the European Commission, the OECD, or the World Bank on corruption-related issues. In the episode, we discussed Mihaly's main research interest, namely corruption in procurement processes and the impact of digital technologies in the fight against corruption. It was a lot of fun conducting the interview together with Niels, and we hope you enjoy it as well. Yeah, welcome to, to the podcast, Mihaly. We're super happy that uh, you have made the time to talk to us. Um, we have come across your work on multiple occasions. You have been recommended as a podcast guest um, many, many times. And now we're finally happy that we all had the time to record this. So to start off the interview, we would like to ask you to maybe give our listeners uh, just a short rundown how you have become interested in corruption and anti-corruption. First, let me thank you for uh, inviting me and uh, being able to be here. I've been following the, the podcast for quite some time now, so I'm you know, honored to be here. Now, back to your question. So that's pretty personal to me. I uh, you know, could rationalize it and come up with some fancy theory why this is a, a good career choice, but really it started off from my hometown, you know, just seeing... Uh, crazy amount of money, a lot of it is from EU funds, just wasted, like literally wasted on, on the wrong things and done uh, in the wrong way and you know, pretty obviously uh, and people uh, benefiting from it. So it was really like uh, in my, my day-to-day experience and I was driven to this uh, corruption in public investment, corruption in government contracts, because it's so visible and it's in so many different areas. You know, it's the cars for the local police, that's the roads and the potholes in the road. Uh, you know, it's also the government IT infrastructure, which suddenly doesn't work, but you spend millions on it. So really it's, it's in your face uh, in a lot of uh, uh, respects. And if you live in a country which is, which is relatively you know, generous public funds to, to do things from roads to IT infrastructure, what have you, and still doesn't do it, that's super frustrating because it has fundamental impact on a lot of people's life, right? That's, you know, you go to a hospital, you don't get the right treatment because the equipment is not working, yeah? Or you would uh, wanna get to, uh, you know, school in the morning and the road is still not, not uh, functional. So there is a huge traffic jam. So, so really that, that was the starting point. And of course I was, uh, you know, looking for nice new topics for uh, you know doing my PhD and corruption was was one of my interests and to be honest I was also frustrated with the state of of the discipline you know, about 10 years ago and that was like we talk a lot about corruption but we have very little understanding of our dependent variable and that trickles down to all sorts of things are we making progress is corruption sticky or not is corruption widespread? Is it the same in healthcare as in, I don't know, selling laws, right? So all these questions are hypothetical or remain very narrow because we have just case studies. So all these questions cannot be 
adequately answered in my uh, eyes without having a dependent variable. So that's how I got into uh, measuring corruption uh, so that we can you know, uh, answer the basic questions. And really think about uh, a ministry of labor without unemployment uh, rate statistics. That's where we have been 10 years ago. We had been talking about it. We had case studies and very high level proxies but really, we had no unemployment rate stats, right? We have been recommending policies. We have been claiming successes and failures, but based on what, right? I'm not dismissive of all these people who did amazing work. I'm just saying at that point in time, I really felt that some critical elements to a well-functioning policy and research uh, framework uh, are missing. Well, that's super interesting. And before we, we dive into your expertise and your, your research, I would like to pick up on what, something that you just said, that you connected waste of public funds, a rotten infrastructure, and let's say insufficient materials for schools and so on. You connected that directly to corruption, to the main issue behind it. And I had a very interesting conversation with uh, Frederick Obermeier, the journalist behind the Panama Files, about it. A lot of people don't make that connection. They really don't know that what's behind the, the rotting infrastructure, for example, is a misuse of public funds. It's not that, that the money is not there. It's just that it's misused. So um, what we were talking about, is how can we make sure that people get this connection between insufficient public infrastructure and corruption directly? So how can we make people care about these issues more? So that's a tricky one, right? Because attributing government failures in, is, is no easy business, even if you are a researcher of uh, good government. And it's also a bit of an attitude, right? So I, I must admit, it has, must have something to do with my, uh, you know, my roots in, in post-communist Eastern Europe. You're always suspicious of government, right? Distrustful. They do something wrong. It's not necessarily a good mindset, but that's how I was raised. And I know a lot of people who have been raised in a similar way. So you look for uh, not just the visible failures, but kind of try to look behind, right? And then when you try to look behind, certainly it's not just corruption. There's a lot of incompetence, a lot of uh, turbulence. Uh, in the 90s, when I was young, there was a lot of turbulence. You know, Needless to say, there is a lot of turbulence now. So there are a lot of things happening. But you, know, you, you start looking a bit, and you quickly put together the different pieces, like, oh, this uh, construction entrepreneur yeah, he's driving a Porsche, driving a Maserati, right? And then, you know, look at the work they are doing. So sort of you have some little uh, signs of, of wrongdoing and things really not going how they should and enriching um, some people behind these schemes. So I think step by step, uh, you build a picture. Of course, media helps a lot, right? Interpreting problems because people see if a road is not working, but why it's not working, that's, that's where you need um, you know, experts, if you like, and quite a few journalists are experts in this. So I must uh, say that some excellent journalists in Hungary where I was raised uh, contributed quite a bit to my thinking, what you look for, to, to, to my interpretation of these problems. So, you know, atlazo.au and a couple of uh, uh, people, D Direct36, uh, you know, some very good investigative journalists in Hungary. I, I have a lot to thank to them. 
It's so interesting. So in a way, uh, I would say then your path and Chris's path have crossed because Chris was really in the beginning interested in how the media and the free media influences perceptions of corruption. And then our path have actually recently crossed again, uh, Mihaly, because we're both in this group from the UNODC, the Corruption Measurement Framework. And I wanted to basically pick up on something you mentioned about, yeah, how can we, you know, measure corruption? How can we get a dependent variable almost akin to, you know, a GDP or you, I think you mentioned poverty. Um, like what have you learned in your um, experience and in your research about how to best measure corruption? So I think this is a topic which, uh, you know, has been around for ages and rightly so, but in a way I am much less excited about it than I have been simply because I think now the problem is not that we don't know what to measure. It's, it's about scaling up the good measurements, right? If you ask me, what's the state of the art in bribery in healthcare? I can point you at three excellent studies and a couple of great data sets. We have uh, good practices for this, which have been tried for a long time, right? So there is one very targeted measurement instrument. If you ask me if you also use this measurement instrument to measure uh, regulatory capture or measure corruption in procurement, I would tell you, oh, oh, oh no, that's you know not the right thing to do. And that's my uh, basically big message here is that as corrupt transactions, corrupt schemes are diverse, you have to have targeted measurement instruments. I work a lot with government contracting, public procurement. It's about a third of government spending. It's a very specific area. The data is specific. The regulations are specific. The actors are specific. Hence, the corruption schemes are specific. But we have measurement instruments for that. Right? There are others who work on legislation, selling laws and votes in the parliament for powerful interests for lobbyists. Right? I can go government sector by government sector, welfare spending, so on and so forth. And for each of these major areas, we need targeted measurement instruments. And that's, that's what we need. And what I said, just to repeat, we know what to measure. If you actually do a thorough literature review from criminology through economics to political science and other fields, you will find good examples, tried and tested. It's about scaling them up so that we really have a comprehensive uh, picture. Yeah, you briefly touched on it already. I would be interested in what are you working on at the moment? So you are the expert on, on public procurement, a topic that I don't know much about. So what fascinates you about that? And maybe outline one of the projects that you're currently working on. Thanks a lot for this question, Chris. I mean, it's a hard sell, even just saying public procurement, right? It's kind of breaks your tongue. It doesn't sound exciting. So... You know, to be honest, in the beginning, I, I found myself as a bit alien to this, but it's actually a very exciting area. It's exciting because there is a lot of uh, money going on there. As I said, about one third of government spending, an enormous degree of discretion. Much of that is needed for effective uh, project implementation, but much of it is, of course, misused. So there is uh, this tension um, there. So public procurement is an area which is also uh, super exciting because it's a lot more transparent than a lot of other uh, areas of government spending or government activity. I can, you know, in the last 10 years or so, I could basically pull together um, data for more than 130 million contracts from basically every single continent 
60, 70 countries, right? I couldn't do that with tax-free courts, yeah? I couldn't do that with welfare uh, or agricultural subsidies, right? So that is a, a surprising area of government spending where there's a lot of corruption yet enormous, enormous amount of transparency. So that's super exciting for uh, people like me who like to start from very captivating stories, which really capture the essence of corruption, but then want to turn these stories into large scale measurement, right? And really this is how, how I think about these, um, uh, these uh, you know, measurement tasks and these research tasks. And then you asked me about some uh, more recent work. So I have done a lot of uh, data collection, data cleaning, data analysis built, I don't know how many websites. So really this is something I continue to do, but it's a little less um, exciting. What I'm working uh, right now on in the procurement field is to expand the scope of what we measure. And that's very important because if you look at this field, and there have been a lot of people working in this field, a lot of great people, all of us, including myself, all of us has measure, have measured corruption using structured information. Is it uh, a competitive tender? Is it uh, advertised? You know, what are the conditions? So really things which are regulated, things which are relatively easy to measure, but the big black hole remains, which is the actual text of what's being purchased under which conditions. So I'm working with some colleagues on, on doing some fancy uh, natural language processing NLP to look at what is the corruption which is hidden in this text once you take into account the usual red flags other, others have developed. So really my, my thinking would be that so far we have captured a large part of corruption but there is still a non-negligible, you know, if you want to put a percentage, only 20-30% of corruption hidden in this text. And how it looks is a bit puzzling. So basically, these corrupt tenders look perfect on the face of it. They are open, they are advertised, a company is showing up, etc., etc. So the things you look for, they all look good. But once you start digging in the text, you realize oh, there is a restrictive condition, there is a specific condition tailored to one company, there is a condition which gives an extra point for this company, and this is only this company which has this feature, so they will be uh, treated in a, in a quite uh, favored way. So trying to push the limits to, of, of measurement in this respect, um, you know, it's ongoing research, so exciting, you know, failure is possible, but I'm very hopeful uh, based on our initial results. That was actually a very good pitch for public procurement research. I really have a lot of follow-up questions now. Well, maybe one very naive one, because I'm really not an expert in this. Are the public procurement processes, let's say, obviously, they are different between democracies and, and more autocratic countries, I would assume. But within the democratic countries, are they global? On the global scale, are they more or less similar? Or are they like a huge variety of how the whole system, the whole public, public procurement system is set up. <laughs> there you got me again. <laughs> yeah, you see, you see, I will want you to pronounce this word a couple of times. No, so, so it's a surprising thing. Um, I think the variation of these markets and how they're organized is not that different 
from you know autocracies to democracies because they are marketplaces at the, the bottom of it right it's a governmental entity or state-owned enterprise what have you is buying something typically from the private sector right so you need to have some sort of advertisement of the opportunity some sort of description of what it is some conditions who can bid who cannot and if there are multiple bids then you have to score them and decide on who is winning so on the major procedural features, they're amazingly similar. Of course, there is WTO government procurement agreement and international treaty on, on procurement markets. So that also comes with quite a bit of standardization. The EU itself among its member states have standardized procurement procedures quite a bit. The OECD is putting forward and has been putting forward a, a fairly standard set of recommendations, which eventually lead to some degree of standardization. Now, standardization goes until these high level features of the process, the steps, the main elements, uh, so on and so forth. But of course, as soon as we get down to the details, and the details are, are with matter, for the corrupt, right? They will exploit the, the tiny loopholes, the fine print. So that varies enormously country by country, right? So that is the sort of thing, like how long do you have to advertise an opportunity? If you advertise an opportunity for three days, so advertise it on Friday and Monday morning is a deadline, you know, good luck bidding, right? If I advertise something for two months, well, even the laziest company will eventually put in a bid, right? There is so much time. So these details, how long you have to advertise, what kind of conditions you can put in, some conditions are not possible. In, for example, in Europe, you cannot write down a particular product. You know, a funny thing, if you want to buy a car, you cannot say, I want to buy a Mercedes, right? Because it's not neutral for the, the different companies. The competition wouldn't be fair. But of course, you can write down, I want a car with this size of the wheel, with this engine, you know, with this uh, uh, lights. And then those who know cars, we realize, oh, you want to buy a Mercedes. You just didn't write it down, right? And this is where uh, corruption and favoritism really starts in spite of the rules. But really, the fine print is what varies a lot across countries. And this fine print is, is what makes it super interesting. This is why I can keep on writing papers after almost 10 years um, using procurement data. And once you get beyond these differences and you focus on the major behavioral aspects of the corrupt acts, I think that's super interesting because in spite of the framework being, being very similar overall, how corruption is done is very different. You know, some very centralized, some seemingly competitive between oligarchs. So basically there's a lot of behavior which you can glean from these data sets. And that's super interesting because you not just look at corruption, but you look at political economy, you look at power distribution. And I must admit now that the first time when I started to work with procurement, I was not interested in procurement. I was interested in the insights procurement gave me into the power distribution, into the structure of corruption in the country. And I think that has been super interesting. It's super interesting because we often talk about the amount of corruption. Well, that's super interesting, but there is another aspect, the structure of corruption. Is it centralized? Is it decentralized? Is it well-organized? Is it sort of random competitive? There are all sorts of ways corrupt actors can organize themselves and the outcomes and the policy recommendations we, we 
we can derive from these structures are very different. So that's why one of my first papers was about state capture and the network structure of uh, high corruption risk organizations. And that was one of my first surprising findings is that you look at Viktor Orban's government, uh, which came into power in uh, 2010, you didn't see an amazing large increase in the amount of corruption. There was some increase, but not a huge one. That was not a watershed moment. What was a watershed moment is the centralization of those relationships, right? If you look at the network, they used to be clusters of local centers. And as Orban came into power, it centralized not only the state, but the extracting networks. And that's amazingly important because all the consequences to democracy, party competition, so on and so forth, follow from this centralization of corruption ranks rather than decentralizing. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think we had uh, Matthew discussing with Ray Fisman not too long ago about like, you know, sort of what's the more harmful type of corruption? Is it, I think there's this idea of Monsoor Olsen with the roving bandit, right? Like whether you have basically decentralized corruption, but more in a sense of like a competition between different actors uh, versus one centralized agent. And I think what you're saying is basically, well, in the case of Hungary, at least, once the power has become more centralized, it became worse, right? It's very interesting. Um, maybe to follow up on that, I mean, you, you now also got me hooked on public procurement, so <laughs> I'm going to follow up on I that. I apologize something. for that. No, that's great. <laughs> I think it's really one of the, like you said, I think you made a very interesting point about the fact that it's actually a very big in terms of how much money is being spent on public procurement. I remember uh, Liz David Barrett mentioned that before, um, and it, we looked up some numbers we could in the show notes, and it was really shocking um, how much money is being spent each year. Um, but like you said, there is a lot of transparency. There are certain regulations about these bits to be open, etc. And I would like to hear what you think, how public procurement has changed and which role new technologies play. I mean, you now hear a lot about e-procurement. Um, the first time I came across it was when I was in Kiev and people mentioned Dozoro. And I basically said like Ukraine has now one of the most modern public procurement system. And I would just love to hear your expert opinion on all, all of those. <laughs> Yeah, so we stay here tonight, right? <laughs> These are huge topics, but very important ones. So changes. Uh, first of all, there has been quite a bit of uh, push for various e-procurement tools. We have a paper on different impacts of e-procurement, and this is the classic thing. It's not one e-procurement. You can uh, put different parts and aspects of the, 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 the tendering and the procurement process uh, online and in e-government tools, and that has been pushed further and further. So a lot of e-procurement systems are pretty encompassing, right? So it's not just initially it was just putting some adverts online it was already a great thing it was much easier to get information much cheaper for companies you know this kind of uh, lower transaction cost logic really fights corruption but also um, uh, improves uh, market efficiency right so that's great but then we started to move into electronic submission even the assessment would be electronic part of it is a helped by uh, electronic pre-processing like classic is People think about you know, AI as the big thing, but you know, a lot of it is just mundane cross-checking records. The company says, this is its annual turnover. Well, manually, someone has to check it, right? Well, if you write an algorithm which cross-checks, 
court records or, or text filing with the submission while you saved a couple of hours per uh, bid for a bureaucrat, right? It's less glamorous than the fancy AI, you know, but it is, you know, real and it helps a lot. So there's a lot of these tools uh, out there and these uh, um, electronic tools as they improve and then bit of AI here and there, I think a lot has less changed and then these tools have been pushed, you know, there's a lot uh, of talk now about contract implementation and basically linking invoices, linking checks on contract implementation back to the original um, uh, corruption, sorry, the original uh, 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 bids and the bid evaluation. And I mentioned corruption is that with Liz, we wrote a paper on displacement effects. And this is exactly uh, what we found is that once you make one phase of the process very transparent, it, it becomes harder to do corruption, hence more costly. So any rationally thinking corrupt group would just displace corrupt activities to a nearby part of the process, right? You cannot uh, uh, rig the, the process in the contract, uh, sorry, the tendering phase. Contract award phase is hard, it's all online, everyone sees it. Well, you move to contract implementation. May well corrupt that, right? It's, it's not uh, online, it's not standardized. It cannot be that much monitored, that easily monitored. Well, this is very real corruption. So that's kind of a, a sobering uh, message. And it's a more kind of one of the, the broader findings of my research, which is you have to have a minimum size of sensible anti-corruption reform. Because you have, you have a system, you have a process, and you really well control corruption in the first part, you're very unlikely to actually decrease corruption overall. You displace it. But once the whole procurement process is monitored, it's well, um, you know, it's transparent, then you have a chance, right? Because nowhere to hide, right? You have to leave procurement as a corrupt group and go for something else. But as you said, it's a lot of money. So actually drain the resources from the corrupt, right? So this is a very important development that we can do this research with least because the data is there and actually these systems are are uh, expanding there is an economic argument transaction cost but also there is a strong anti-corruption argument and i think ukraine is an excellent is an excellent example for that because it's not just anti-corruption it's about trust in government right it's about uh, companies bidding increasing competition that brings down prices, improves quality, that cuts the cost for government, right? So there's a lot of economic and broader arguments for these tools and anti-corruption actually facilitates this, right? It's, it's anti-corruption public procurement is often not the sort of uh, anti-corruption which which makes things more expensive, which slows things down. Rather, if it's well done, it also saves money for the government. I would like to pick up on this because what you mentioned before is that you, if I understood that correctly, is that you're working a lot with procurement data and has this shift towards e-procurement, even if it didn't change the procurement process or the, the transparency of the procurement process in total, has it changed your research? So do you have more data available to you now that allows you to investigate procurement processes better? And adding to that, something that we briefly discussed before we started recording, that you mentioned a lot of the bits that are submitted for procurement contracts are made by bots. Does this bring noise or additional bias to the data that you use in your research? Yeah, so absolutely. So the e-procurement 
systems and the publication of this uh, information has basically enabled my research. And as these systems expand, I can do uh, research in more and more countries. And also as systems become more extensive within a country, then I can do a lot more interesting things. So examples are, you know, often different sectors are not included initially in any procurement system under the procurement law, like state-owned enterprises are out. But once the system and the laws are extended to, I can start looking at state-owned enterprises, right? Then that's super interesting because then you have uh, interesting comparisons between central government, state-owned enterprises, and local government. The same applies for high-value and low-value procurement. A lot of systems started high-value contracts only, and then they gradually get expanded. And that's super interesting because the actors will change, right? The schemes will change, and you realize, oh, wow, there are this, this country, and there are two worlds next to each other. The very high-level corruption we always talk about, these are the, you know, the prime ministers and their cuisines, so on and so forth. But then there is this local level, amazing variability. Right. And then some system might be clean or, you know, more or less dirty. And then the local might be again totally disconnected. I'm very much like the, the research on, on local level corruption in the UK, because at the time when we did the research, central government contracts were relatively clean. But then we found a lot of variability on the local level, a lot of regional variability between municipal contracts in different parts of the UK. So that was suddenly in my face like, oh, wow, corruption is not a thing, right? It's something very diverse. It's something very dynamic. And if you look at one part, which looks very clean, you may be surprised another part is totally not clean, right? So that's, that, that was amazing. And then we did a little study for the European Commission a few years ago and basically compared municipal corruption between Sweden and Romania. And we just started to put next to, next to each other those two distributions. Suddenly, there were some Swedish municipalities which looked very average in Romania in terms of their corruption risks. And there were some municipalities in Romania which kind of got to the very you know, high integrity standards of the average uh, Swedish municipality. So you realize that, well, the two country averages are very far. If you look at the diversity behind these averages, well, actually the two distributions overlap quite a bit. So I think this is the kind of you know, very simple messages, but very powerful, which which are which made me very you know happy to do this kind of research with procurement data. Should I answer your other question on bots? That's a difficult one. Very exciting Please. one. <laughs> yeah. So so bots. So bots are increasingly used. So as the system become fully electronic, no uh, paper uh, interaction is needed. You can write algorithms, and in places like Brazil, federal government, it is you know been recognized as a problem that bots put in bits, right? And bots written uh, in a way, the algorithms are written in a way that they optimize uh, bidding behavior for the bidder, right? So it becomes a cost problem for the government, right? Because bots will uh, outsmart, if you like, the government uh, e-procurement, e-auctioning system. So that's you know, quite an issue. I haven't come across a corruption case with bots, but definitely from a public spending efficiency perspective, that's quite uh, challenging. So uh, to pick up on this local uh, aspect of it, is something systematic coming uh, when you did the analysis? Was there some common factors of the municipalities that performed really well in public procurement? Is there a lesson to be learned from both cases in Romania and Sweden? 
Now you ask a million dollar questions, how to fight corruption, right? That's uh, I we have thank to. You. <laughs> thank you for this question. So yeah, I mean, there are a lot of uh, lessons and, and some have been confirmed by other research, right? So one of the things we, we confirmed, for example, among others looking at uh, Sweden with uh, Carl Dahlstrom and colleagues was political competition. It's an underappreciated fact, but uh, a considerable portion of local uh, elections, like mayoral elections in uh, Sweden are not that competitive. You could say about third of local elections pretty much always go to the same party, if not the same person, which also happens, but definitely the same party. So it is a safe seat. And if you have that sort of dynamic, political uh, leadership basically uh, in place for decades, even in a place like Sweden, where, there, where you have strong controls, the media is independent, it's well-funded, the citizenry is you know, well-educated, interested, they are there, hold government accountable, so on and so forth. Even under these general conditions, you have quite a bit of corruption problem, corruption risk problem, right? And that's, you know, that confirms our, our theories, right? You want politicians to compete with each other and you want uh, the, the corrupt politicians to be thrown out, or at least call it politicians who don't uh, perform well, don't deliver local public services, you want them to be removed from office, at least threatened with being removed from office. But if the same party holds the, the mayoralty for 20 years, 30 years, that's the risk of being removed, very little. And that's where uh, corruption pops up, even in a place like Sweden. And that's where local politicians have the resources to build up these networks. It's, we often think that, oh, corruption is easy to do because we see it everywhere. Corruption actually is hard to do, right? You need trust among actors for it. You need expertise, especially if you want to corrupt something like procurement. You need quite a bit of technical expertise you need quite a bit of legal expertise and you need uh, entrepreneurs who are willing to collude with you, right? So that's also not easy to do because, you know, in a place like Sweden, they might make a lot more money from the private sector. You have to convince them to do business with the government and uh, in addition, offer some kickbacks. So this all takes time, but if you are in power for 20 years, you build up the skills of doing corruption, right? It's very important. The skills of doing corruption uh, can be a curb on corruption, but if you have time, no longer a problem. So this is what we have found. And I'm not arguing that, you know, Sweden has become suddenly more corrupt than, than Romania. I don't think that's the case. If you definitely wanna uh, necessarily wanna compare countries, but within an otherwise bare-run country, you can find quite a bit of wrongdoing and you can find uh, reasonable explanations for that. Yeah, that's interesting. And I saw from the research that you've recently been doing is now we've talked a lot about government procurement, let's say. And in a recent paper, you investigated procurement processes within large, let's say, supranational or international institutions like the World Bank or Europe Aid. Do you find similar problems and solutions for the problems uh, of corruption in these areas than compared to, to government procurement processes? So that's a tricky one because the, the picture becomes more complex, right? So in a standard national procurement setup, there is some taxpayer money which goes into a municipal administration, a ministry, and then it gets spent to uh, spent on local public goods like 
I don't know, building road. Now, if the World Bank, or I would also bring here uh, the European Commission with EU uh, funds, so structure and cohesion funds. So when a third actor comes into a play, then the accountability mechanisms and the money flows become more complex. And this is what makes it super interesting, because if you think about the World Bank, so World Bank funded procurement uh, contracts or EU funded procurement contracts, there is an extra layer of controls. The World Bank comes with its own uh, procurement rules. The EU comes with extra uh, accountability mechanisms. You have to report data. You have some checks done on your invoices, so on and so forth. So there is this extra control on the one hand. On the other hand, there is a lot of extra money. This is true to some degree uh, uh, with the, the World Bank. There's quite a bit of money coming in, but it's especially true for EU funds, which you know, a substantial amount of GDP of some of these, you know, recipient countries like, like Hungary or, 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 you know, or Poland. And the tricky thing here is that the money often doesn't come from local taxpayers. So their accountability mechanisms uh, are quite different. And while there is some extra controls from the supranational body, there is a lot more temptation to steal that money because there's suddenly a lot of money in some cases, like COVID, right? In some cases, you have to spend a lot very quickly. Well, that's very tempting to steal from it, right? Because no one is price conscious. Everyone is just concerned about spending very quickly. Well, there are some additional controls, but maybe we can uh, play around with them and we can make the processes look by the book, but actually uh, do corruption. So it's super interesting, this interplay between supranational, national, and the local level, and how the different factors, you know, the kind of pluses and minuses on this corruption equation play out depending on which context you look at. Maybe to kind of shift gears slightly and go into something that we've been discussing previously is, um, do you think that there are within public procurement, but also within the bigger realm of corruption, uh, ways how this new technology that we've been touching on, um, AI, big data, et cetera, can actually be used for corrupt purposes. Are you, are you aware or do you feel like there are any threats that come from using technology with the intent um, to engage in corruption? We have seen like some institutions like Transparency International become recently interested in it and we would love to just also hear what you think about it. So that's a very complex question. And like with um, any data-driven tool, any data e-government e tools, basically, the first question is about power concentration, right? So if things are done on paper locally, it's a lot harder to control. It's a lot harder to see what's really going on. But once you have a centralized uh, e-government tool, which the data is you know, fed into a central database, then you start developing some AI tools which spot risks, which spot anomalies, you know, make some predictions, then those who have access to this central uh, intelligence tool, the central database, they can easily exert a lot more control than uh, it was possible before. So I would frame this predominantly as a kind of question of power distribution in which AI is a powerful tool. And if the central government has been corrupt to start with, well, actually, what we did by pushing e-government, pushing AI in government, we just gave a very powerful tool for the corrupt 
to pursue their interest. And that can take very many different forms. It can be that they use the risk assessment tool, AI-driven risk assessment tool, to target the corrupt adversaries they have, so the other corrupt people, right? So consolidate their power, there's more money for them to steal. They can also kind of uh, use the tool selectively to make sure that, well, their friends are flagged up by the tool, but unfortunately there is no one to follow up those particular flags, right? So there are quite a few scenarios I can think about where AI is a powerful tool in the hands of the corrupt to help them pursue their interests. That's really interesting, Mihai. It was a really interesting conversation, and now you uh, successfully convinced two more researchers that this is a very worthwhile endeavor uh, to, to research public procurement uh, processes. We don't want to hold you too much longer, um, but we usually end our podcast with asking our guests about their pick of the podcast. So this could be a movie, uh, a song, a TV series, or something like this, something pop culture related or an article that you recently read that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Amazing. That's the hardest question, right? <laughs> so yeah, a lot I could recommend, but if I had to pick just one, I would go you, for... You can also pick many if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> no, but one I was thinking about is, is a computer game, right? There are quite a few games out there which are fun, right? You can spend countless hours on them, but they also teach you strategy, which teaches you the basics of government and power, control over populations, different interest groups. And one of the, the games I played a lot with, and I, in retrospect, I could rationalize those hours spent on playing as a training for my future corruption researcher role is civilizations. Sigmayer civilizations and the various I second uh, that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, especially the, the latest uh, uh, editions, the last few years. So they very advanced in terms of a form of government, democracy versus autocracy, ways of control, even you know, populism, exploiting religion for control, so on and so forth, providing public goods versus investing in police, keeping unhappy uh, people in check, and using corruption to weaken your enemy. And sadly, with you know, what's happening around the world, the invasion of Ukraine, Russia's action, we have seen quite a few examples where corruption has been strategically used to weaken the response of your opponent uh, when you do something you know, which is not in their interest, but you want them not to act, right? And civilization does have these features where you can send in a spy and uh, you know, blunt the, the, the response of your opponents, weaken their military, weaken their leaders. So I think that's a quite tough lesson. And then sadly, we see it in real life, but the game is amazing. It teaches you a lot about these um, dynamics. It's great. It was one of my favorite games to play when I was younger. Um, and it has a very educative, but it also it's a lot of fun. Um, so totally agree. So, thanks, uh, thanks so much, Mihaly, for your time and all your insights. This was a podcast episode long due. And we're really looking forward to be able to air it to a wider audience, all your insights that you've shared with us. So thanks a lot for your time. And uh, hopefully you get a chance to meet you at one point in person too. Great. Thank you. Amazing. Thanks a lot for inviting me. And I'm you know, eager to see further episodes of the podcast. I'm a great fan. So keep on going, guys. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. 
As always, you can find all relevant links in the show notes. This is the last episode before our summer break. We will use the time to record new interviews and discuss some changes that we will make in the future. We wish you a wonderful summer and we see you back here in September. If you want to support our podcast, please spread this episode to your colleagues and friends. To stay updated, follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Köbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke. With assistance by Amy Assad and music by Kehan Golkar. Stay safe everyone, see you in September.